Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Drop-In. We're here in central London on Friday morning. It's very nice and sunny, and we're off to the home of a man who's been massively influential in English football. It is David Dean. He was the vice chairman and co-owner at Arsenal for 24 years, including in 1992, where he and four other representatives of the Big Five, as they were then, went ahead with forming the Premier League. He was a huge part of that, David Dean. He, ins- he made sure that the FA supported it and, in the end, is one of the main fathers of modern football as we know it. But he was also an Arsenal fan and he still says that Arsene Wenger is one of his best friends who he speaks to all the time. He brought Wenger to Arsenal and then made the running for so many of their massive signings of that era, including the invincible season, which is still an unreplicated achievement in modern English football. And when he was finally made to leave in 2007, in an incident that he still says he's very unhappy about, Arsene Wenger said that he thought maybe he should leave at that time too. In the end, he didn't, and according to Dean, he persuaded him to stay, and the rest is history. Dean's an astonishing figure, really, in modern football, not just because of what he achieved at Arsenal and what he did with the Premier League, but because of the range of things that he's been involved in. He claims he brought the vanishing spray to the Premier League that you use when, you, when referees use when taking free kicks. He encouraged people to start having their names on the back of shirts. That was back in 1993. He's also instrumental in getting VAR off the ground and goal line technology. The list goes on and on. With all that in mind, we thought he would be such an interesting person for you guys to hear from for this fourth episode of The Drop-In. So let's go and find him. Now bold. And it's Tony Adams put through by Steve Bold. Would you believe it? was tough really he said Arsene and I had unfinished business thank you all for being such an important such an important part of my life and hope to see you soon well done bye bye when you want to compare the Super League to the start of the Premier League my blood boils World Cup 2018 will be organised in Russia you have the best bid and got the lowest votes that hurts I've never met an owner yet 
who doesn't love the club, whether he loved the club before he put the money in or afterwards, but they are that much attached to it that they want the club to succeed. When you're looking at standards, these have set the standards. They are the invincibles everywhere you look. Thank you so much for having us round. Great pleasure. For letting us drop in. Um, your story in football is such an intriguing one for us to cover on the show because unlike most of the people that I talk to, you don't have a footballer's background, right? So you managed to influence the game hugely as we'll come on and talk about, but you had to get these brilliant players and one manager in particular to trust you over time in what seems from the outside to be quite a closed world. What do you think it is about you that meant that you could get these these players to trust you? Uh, that's a difficult question to answer, Kate, but uh, I think uh, when you're in football, you've always got to be looking forward. It's important, you've got to have your objectives. And obviously mine was success, was to get a winning team. And I often say this, that when I wake up every morning, when I'm shaving, when I get my best ideas, I always say, get a winning team. Everything flows from that. So it was a question of very often traveling around the world and um, finding the talent that, whether it was Arsene or George Graham, whoever that was the, the manager who they wanted, and using whatever skill I've got and a little bit of personality, a little bit of humor, a bit of common sense to try and encourage them to join Arsenal. So do you think or become England manager, whatever it was? Well, quite so many disparate things. Um, so do you think then it was it this people could see your kind of obsessive attention to detail, or that you really like <laughs> knew the brief? What what do you reckon? I'd like to think it's a combination of both. Uh, certainly, I enjoy meeting people. I spend a lot of my life going, as you know now, going around schools and prisons, just doing that very, very thing. You know, m meeting people and trying to encourage them and inspiring people and trying to give them some direction in life. Uh, I enjoy it. Mm. Okay. Um, and your legacy then, all right, is as an innovator, would you, does that sound comfortable for you? An innovator that, in football? That's very kind of you to say. You can say that I can't. Okay. Um, I'd like to think I put a, a a brick in the wall somewhere along the way, yes. And I think I was fortunate, particularly with Arsene. I think uh, we we gave Arsenal probably the most successful period of the in the history of the club. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I was to, I'm gonna I'm gonna capture it then, and then see if you think the so three things I would say being the forefront of a huge period of Arsenal success, probably bringing the first non-British manager, bringing Sven Joran Eriksson in to manage the England football team. And founding the Premier League. Do you think that's those are your three proudest? Uh, yeah, obviously they rank very highly, and uh, I think over the years I've always tried to drive the game forward. Whenever I go to meetings, I'm always looking to see what should be the next step. You know, whether it be, you know, the the nine point one five spray, the ten yard spray. That's, um, that's used and then pioneering goal line technology, VAR, and the next stage where it goes to, you know, being obviously not alone because you need other people. Um, I don't want to take all the credit, but certainly I've liked to think that I've been behind a lot of these things. Um, and obviously the, the Premier League was, was massive at the time in 1992. And obviously, you know, the rise of, of Arsenal, how that developed from when I joined the club in 1983, I joined the board, the total turnover was one and a half million. Today it's four fifty five hundred million. So it's pretty big. Yeah, you said you put in, what, two, about £275,000. Yeah, I, I don't like talking about money, it's crap. Well, that's in the book, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, uh, but the take was that you didn't think it would... No. I, you would I, get your money back I, even, particularly. I didn't do it as... It, it, that was never in my mind. Uh, I, I wanted just to be part of the management process to try and see where I could take the club to. Mm. Uh, it was never a question of financial reward. For me, it was a labour of love. Mm. It was a club that I supported since um, 10 years of age. And you think that's a hugely significant thing when you're talking about 
people being in charge of football clubs? Uh, well, I, I think I make that reference. I think modern owners, it can be in two camps. Those that put their money where their heart is, which was in my case, my heart came first. Then I put my money into it. And then the others who put their money in and their heart follows the money. So without being unkind to Roman Abramovich, but he probably was not a Chelsea supporter necessarily, but he bought Chelsea and became and did a fantastic job, it must be said, for Chelsea Football Club. Mm. Uh, gave them un untold trophies and success. So that's the a lot of the new breed of owners. They buy a club and then their heart follows. So you don't think it's possible that they buy the club and then their heart doesn't follow? As some uh, no, I think they normally... Theorise well, about places like perhaps Manchester United. Um, well, do they just do it as a financial investment? I would hope not. I think that they have to be sport lovers. They love the sport, otherwise you wouldn't get involved. I don't think there's anybody I've met who, who owns a football club who really doesn't like this, but they do love the sport, there's no doubt. I suppose that, I mean, you could theorise that that might mean that people who wanted to be responsible for football clubs were vulnerable then to... Um, unscrupulous uh, outsiders because if you like me you love football and you think I want to make this I want to make Arsenal Football Club the best it can possibly be in your specific case yeah. and but it feels like there's a lot of people in the football industry who are, who don't necessarily have the best interests of the game at heart uh, you're smiling I, I, you don't feel I, like I think I'm that, I hope that's not true you think I, I'm a I'm cynic not, yeah I was going to use I was going to use that word <laughs> I hope that's not true. It is a sport. It's 11 against 11. Uh, obviously, you know, when you support a club, you want that team to win. So you may be a Spurs supporter, Finns, a Sheffield United supporter. Of course you do. But nevertheless, you appreciate, or you, I hope you'd appreciate, if the other team happened to be better than you, than your team, you have to appreciate that as well. Yeah. Goes with, it should go with the territory. Yes, but I'm talking about the broader picture of like how you know, how football feels like it works. I mean, you were, you know, there's so many things to talk about, but we'll we'll come on to that. But you, of course, were involved in the bid for the 2018 yeah. World Cup, the England bid. Yeah, yeah and that that's... was one of the biggest disappointments of my life when, oh. I, when I think about that, travelling traveling around the world for, probably travelled around the world at least, well, for one and a half years, and I must have travelled around for about one and a half times going around the world. We had the best bid and got the lowest votes. I mean, that, so that hurt. Um, but you move on. The key point is that you, that was a done deal, right? Uh, yeah, once again, I, I, certainly a, lo a lot of people paid the price afterwards, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a different story today because um, when Gianni Infantino, the current president of FIFA, came in, he came in on the on the, the mandate to clean up the shop, which I think he's done. It's now 211 countries voting, so there's 211 votes. When we were on the bid at the time, there were 24 of the executive committee voting. That got clipped to 22 because two of them fell by the wayside beforehand, getting trapped. So there was in the end it was only 22 people voting mm -hmm. so that was the danger so it's it's a lot it's different now okay because it's easier to influence just one yeah. or two um because the do, do you think do you think the england bid was naive because you you you've spoken about how you there was a bit of an odd feeling around it and there oh, were yeah. closed door discussions and as we now know it went to russia yeah um and then subsequently went to cat the next world cup went to qatar so do you feel like the England bid throwing a lot of effort but not much well, street we got, smarts? I mean, that's the what country I was got say. behind it. We played the game correctly. We had a wonderful team working with us for that 2018 bid. Mm -hmm. We deserve better. You know, we had a fantastic technical study. We had a wonderful economic study. We had the best stadia in the world, as I believe we still do, by the way. I think collectively our stadia are probably the finest in the world mm -hmm. as a country and that's why we really deserve to host the world cup mm -hmm. and also the infrastructure we've got the roads we've got the trains we've got the airports we know we know how to how to run it mm -hmm. so that's why and one of the reasons I, I was keen for us to host the next world the 2030 world cup to 2026 is going to canada mexico and america 
I was hoping that we would bid for 2030 and BFA decided they wanted to go for 2028, the Euros 2028, mm -hmm. which, which they've done and hopefully they'll be successful. Mm -hmm. So do you think, what do you feel like you've learned from that then? Well, it's a different ball game now. It's not what we what we learned. We, it, it, the game's changed. The rules of the of bidding has changed completely. Mm -hmm. So it's it's it, 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 it's being done properly, professionally, cleanly. So the 2018 FIFA World Cup, 2018 FIFA World Cup, ladies and gentlemen, will be organised in <laughs> Russia. Well, you spent much of your time um, within English football as well, trying to agitate more for change, I would say. Do you feel like in England, English football is... why? In fact, it is. Why do you feel like English football is so resistant to change generally? Uh, I think that's a little bit unfair. We're, we're, it, it, English football cannot make... If you don't about the rules of the game, that's controlled by FIFA. Mm -hmm. So it's not England making changes to the rules of the game are outside of our control in the first instance it's got to be global it's got to be the same rules wherever you are in the world uh, that's the first thing so i don't i don't think as a country we're i think we are sometimes slow at embracing change by nature as a country we don't embrace change easily Mm -hmm. I can remember when the Treasury were introducing the pound coin instead of the old pound note. And people were marching on Downing Street. No, 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 the pound note is sacrosanct. <coughs> and then you say, you want a dirty piece of paper and you want a little coin in your pocket. Will you? And, and people accept it. You know, the trouble I had getting the, the spray in, you know, this famous nine point, can I just use Yeah, the, of course you can. This is the vanishing spray that's the, used the, if yeah, you're taking the, a free kick. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. I remember this was into talking about this. Actually, this is one of the best things that came out of the bid. <laughs> because although we didn't win the bid, we did get the spray. <laughs> <laughs> this is an example of you taking the positives, isn't it? You've got to think. <laughs> but it's true. And it was from nothing. It was just by chance. It was serendipitous mm -hmm. that I happened to be in Argentina at the time trying to get votes for England. And at the end of my talk, a guy came up to me and he said, can I interest you in my product? I said, what do you do? He said, I'm in the paint business. I said, paint? What's that got to do with football? He said, I've invented this invisible paint, 9.15. So I said, what's 9.15? He said, well, that's metres. That corresponds with your 10 yards. When there's a free kick, and he demonstrated, you put the... We, should we do it? It's all right. Oh my God, he's doing it on his own carpet. Yeah, it, it will disappear. I didn't see this happen. Here we are. Can you see that? So he said, well, you know, that's where, you know, I want the free kick taken there. I want the boys, right, girls. I'd always stand. thought this was something to do with the alchemy of it being on grass, but I don't think no, I've no, ever but considered it, will, it before. It will, dis it will disappear. Otherwise, I could be living... In it. serious trouble. I, I, could, I could be living the... the Outside tonight. It's, it's definitely fading. It I will, feel no, confident grass, that the carpet's going to be all on right. On grass, it fades within two minutes. <laughs> you sure? It's right. Gonna, you've because, done this before. Because grass is 90% water. No, right, not right, on this right. particular carpet. But oh, right, okay. give it time. By the time we finish, it will It's a bit slower than you would if yes. you were... No, no, grass, it disappears in two minutes. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. see it. Anyway, so, you know, that took time to get... I don't know, uh, we had uh, one set getting two substitutes in took time. Uh, to get the names on the shirts, oh, no, that took about a year or so to get in, mm -hmm. uh, because people are—they're uh, slow. People are used to the status quo, so sometimes you've got just to say, "Look, we have to try it." I've—I always have a motto when I go around the schools and prisons giving giving talks. Uh, I, I got a motto of my own, which is the motto of the turtle: "You don't get anywhere unless you stick your neck out." And I've never been frightened to stick my neck out. To, you know, you think it through, and if I believe it's right, I'll go for it. I'll be tenacious, and I'll try and get the job done. The opposition you had to the shirts, so yeah. you wanted to put uh, names on the back of shirts. This was in 1993, or, or yeah. you'd been talking about it for a while. A, but Yeah, it took about a year to get through. Uh, it was an idea I got from the States. Mm -hmm. um, going to see American football because my wife comes from the States and every time I used to go there I used to see an NFL game 
and I'd see the players coming out, they'd be introduced and every time they got a touchdown, immediately they, they pointed to their names on the back of their shirts. And I thought, well, why don't we do that in England? Historically, we were one to 11. That's mm-hmm. been going since, I don't know, 1880 or something. Mm. Um, so I remember going to one meeting and I had Giggs 11, Adams 6, Shearer number 9, and um, somebody put their hands up and said, you can't have that. And I said, why not? They said, it takes up too much laundry room. Mm. because you've got to have short sleeve shirts, long sleeve shirts, home and away, maybe a third kit, all with people, you know, the individual players, their sizes, instead of generically 1 to 11. So uh, that took some time to come in. Now, it, you know, you see the sprays used all, all around the world now easily. You see goal line technologies come in, it's being used. People thought that was crazy, mm. trying to introduce goal line technology. People don't realise since it's been introduced five, six years ago, every year it goes into double figures when it's used. I see what you mean. As in, it is being called on. It is being called on all the time. VAR, there was a major resistance about VAR. What people didn't understand with VAR, the first statistic I always give people, is that before VAR got introduced, the referees were making one game-changing error every three games. Well, that's too much because that can determine promotion, relegation, getting into Europe, whatever it may be, and uh, needed to change. You needed technology. Mm -hmm. So consequently, I was always passionately behind the introduction of of VAR. And so when you're pushing for these innovations, which you can see... At the time, you think yeah. this is this is obvious. Like this is <laughs> this is a great idea. How do how do you go about it? You've got to keep bringing it up into meetings. You've got to keep putting it up. The first thing is to get it on the agenda. I mean, I'm on a campaign now, which I call Pure Time, getting the time of the game. And I'll ask you a question: How long is the ball in play during a game? It's been as low as like 40, 43, I think, in okay. last season. So on average, it's between fifty-eight and sixty minutes. The right. ball is actually in play. My idea is rather like basketball. You have pure time. The game lasts, pure time is 60 minutes, two halves of 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So that it cuts out all of the nonsense of time wasting. That, uh, and because now the, uh, I've, I've spoken to every, all, the, all, the, all the, the, the elite referees in England. And I say to them, you know, when you put the board up three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, six minutes, how accurate are you? To a man, they all said, use the same word, guesswork. Mm. There's a difference between, I would say, although this could be because I'm, you know, stuck in Not the past and I'm wedded to 90 minutes. But no, I it would... still goes for 90. The game will go for 95, an... 96, 97 minutes. The game will last, the actual will be in your seat for the same 90 minutes or maybe 95 minutes. But equally, people, you can see why people are wedded to... Yeah, because they don't want to see change, but they've got to realise where change is going to take them. You get accuracy. You want to get it right. We want the integrity. Last year, Arsenal played Liverpool. Mo Salah scored a goal. It was a four-man move. How long do you think that goal took from start from the goalkeeper kicking it out to Mo Salah putting it at the back of the net? I know, it was 10.8 seconds. 10.4 seconds. Or maybe 10.8 seconds. <laughs> I'll, okay, I'll give you even 10.8 seconds. Fine. Do you think the referee or the fourth official, when he puts up four or five minutes, is he accurate to the last 10.8 seconds? No, he's not. He can't be. No, of He doesn't not. have the tools to be. Right? He's doing other things. The referee is the busiest man on the pitch. Needs a lot of he respect. Needs help. needs help. Take that away from him. He doesn't need to keep the time. Okay, that's my party line. Fine. And the referees themselves agree. Okay. So now, slowly but surely, we're getting on the agenda. It will be discussed. It will be the next HOA is to have it trialled. It will be trialled somewhere in the world for a season to see how it works. Does it? Does it actually? Is it feasible? I think we all have to in life. You've got to be open-minded. It's easy to say no before yes, and give it a chat. My always, I, I, I tried when I'm driving any idea. I like to get people on site to think. Just give it a chance. Let's try it. See if it works. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them, and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. very moment when the future of English football looked hopeless, a new breed of young entrepreneurs emerged, determined to tackle the problems of the game. They were a small group of self-made businessmen whose passion for football led each of them to invest in their club. The key men were Irving Scholar from Tottenham Hotspur, David Dean from Arsenal, and Manchester United's Martin Edwards. What these men were going to achieve was a revolution in English football. Well, I suppose that takes us quite neatly onto the Premier League, but mm. also your opposition to the European Super League. So let's start, should we start <laughs> with the Premier League? Because to many people from the outside, that would seem like um, two semi-equivalent uh, radical moves. Mm. The you, you breaking away with the five, well, four other people from the um, the big clubs, as they were, and then what, what's happened more recently. But I know that on the one hand, you know, the Premier League is one of the defining achievements of your life. And then on the other hand, you were very stern to try and get the yeah. European Super League stopped. Do you think yeah. there's a con- contradiction there? Not at all. Do you want to tell you why? Please. Okay. So let's just take the Premier League first, and then we'll talk about the Super League afterwards. So the Premier League was formed really because football in the 1980s and early 1990s was ungovernable. What happened? You couldn't make meaningful change. Why? The voting structure was all wrong. There was four divisions making up 92 professional clubs. The lower divisions had the weight of votes to outvote the top division all the time. And it it, was very frustrating. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this time, I, you know, my, my first football league meeting, this is before the Premier League, when I proposed there should be two substitutes instead of one. Somebody put their hand up and said, you can't have that. I said, why not? They said, it's an extra bonus, an extra seat on the bus, it's an extra meal. What? I wanted to put my head in the microwave oven. I said, but that, you know, so it got outvoted. It took six meetings to, to get it through. So that sort of thing. So... A, the are you into, out of interest, are you into five substitutes? You yeah, think that's the good call? and seven. Right, yeah. okay. 
and 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 on until no 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 but i mean why not give, give the manager as much chance as you can but we can talk about that because i would like to see more english players as well being on the bench i mean that's a separate separate subject there. okay making change was very difficult if not impossible in the 80s and 90s also during the 1980s football was in a bad state in england we'd suffer a hooliganism. Attendances were dropping like a stone. Women were not going to the games. Mothers didn't want their kids to go to the games. They were worried about their safety. Some, the, the stadia themselves were antiquated. What you see today is that it, it's fantastic. Uh, if you go to the Arsenal, so you go to the Spurs Stadium, which is, I think, it's not easy as an Arsenal man to say this, Spurs Stadium is the finest football stadium I've seen in the world anywhere. It's ph- phenomenal. Daniel Levy's done a sensational job there. All credit to him. So um, the stadia were antiquated, the game itself wasn't that attractive, something needed change. And then on top of that, what really, to me, was probably the catalyst, personally in my eyes, was Hillsborough in 1989. And the famous meeting that I had when I went round to see the parents, Jenny and Trevor Hicks, the parents who tragically lost two children at Hillsborough. And I'll never forget that as long as I live meeting them and they telling me the story this was two three days after hillsborough of what happened and that shook me to rigid and i thought if i'm going to be in football football has to change football can't be about that it has to be an ent- we're in the entertainment business we want to give pleasure to people and that's really gave me the incentive to to shake the tree and that's when i rallied around the other clubs and said you know we have to do something here and then add on to that the fact that we were getting nothing from television and sponsors were running away. They didn't want to embrace football at the time. It was a bad word. It was hooliganism. Mm-hmm. So it needed something radical to happen. So that was the introduction. And what we did was very democratic because we took the old first division of 22 clubs, reinvented ourselves, renamed ourselves, called ourselves the Premier League and started again, still with promotion and relegation. Mm-hmm. So we took Which the whole 22. It was yeah. an elitist. So let me just stop there because you can see I'm getting passionate about this discussion because when you want to compare the Super League to the start of the Premier League, my blood boils. So now, okay, I think I hope I've made my case for the Premier League. You haven't, what, I mean, the missing piece really is that it's still big clubs trying to rule other clubs. That's the comparison I would make, and and the secrecy. Kate, I don't think that's true at all. I think it's very democratic. It takes two-thirds majority to push anything through, which is very fair. So it's not as if you can just get four or five clubs who can decide the fate of others. That is not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Recently, they wanted to increase from three to five. It took several meetings to push that through. There are disproportionate... In terms of the income from TV, but, but it's disproportionately. Yeah. I appreciate, of course, that you say that the clubs, the top clubs, are the mo- the the glamour clubs. And, and you'll always find the big city clubs have the most attendance and the best sponsorship because they attract more people. I mean that that happens. It's that's 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 how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still very democratic. The way the Premier League is run, the founder members agreement is still, was written 30 years ago and by and large it's still intact today. The football league clubs have signed a deal to televise league games exclusively on independent television, but only after more arguments about how to divide the money, worth £11 million a season in total. And they also agreed to look into restructuring the league with a possible Premier Division of 10 or 12 clubs. Now let's just talk about the Super League. To me, it was abhorrent, and I use that word, I remember when interviewed on Football Focus a few days after it came out. The fact that you can have an elite league, hand-picked teams, right, so their name happens to be Real Madrid or Barcelona, right, or Manchester United, all of a sudden just catapulted into a sterile league where you've got, 10, 12, 14, 16 clubs, because their their names happen to be the right ones, playing against each other, without promotion and relegation, without based on merit, I find that abhorrent and it had to be consigned to the waste paper basket. Mm -hmm. That's my case. Well, I think we all, I mean, yeah, I'm obviously in agreement with you about the Super League. It's got to be based on merit. Football, it's a sport. 
you know, if you finish, and we've got a we've got a Super League. It's called the Champions League. If you do well after thirty eight games, you get into the you get into the Champions League. That is your Super League. You're playing against the cream of Europe. People are still trying to fiddle with the Champions League, though. You know, they're trying to extend it, which they are going to do, uh, and that may have its issues because you want every game to be meaningful. That's why I was against also recently the talk of uh, North versus South and all. It's got to be a meaningful game. Yeah, totally. And I'm passionate about an 18-club league, by the way. I think at some stage we have to embrace that. Going to, It should have been an 18-club league when we started. And I'm still campaigning for that. I so think this that is about is right. too much football? Too much football, getting a proper mid-season break. The players need a break. The game today is faster than it's ever been. The players are playing more football. They've got to, because of the other tournaments, you've got the Champions League now being extended. And if the World Cup goes to three uh, every three years uh, right so you do need you do need to go down to 18 clubs and the nonsense there is that television money will be shared between 18 instead of 20 so the clubs that are in it shouldn't complain yes there will be a problem with two clubs going down initially and that has to be some mechanism to make sure that they are comfortable Anyway, but I'm, but I'm you think parachute up. payments have been... Well, they're distorted. No, ter- yeah. pa- we're right. Parachute payments are something separate. That was put in as a cushion for those clubs going down so that they could effectively... They've still got locked into high-priced contracts, which is understandable. For sure, in terms of salaries and things and like that. And that has to be looked at. And also there has to be a clause in the contract now that clubs get relegated. So the players have got to take some of the blame for that. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, if the players shouldn't expect, if they drop down a division or two, they shouldn't expect to get the same salary, should they, as when they were playing the top division, or should they? Well, surely it's up to the clubs to make sure that they organise it better. So exactly. That not being... So there should be a clause in the contract, in my opinion, that if a club gets relegated, therefore the players' contracts get reviewed. If a club gets relegated, you can't just blame the manager and the owner. Surely some of the responsibility has to go on the players of course it does of course it does but in terms of trying to legislate for the what's happening if the club is in the top division versus what's happening if they're in the championship that that should really fall yeah on onto the club but what's happened the kate is the fact that the television money being so high now it the parachute payments have gone up so dramatically that it distorts the clubs left behind in the championship. Yes, that's true. So that does need to be recalibrated, in my opinion. Yeah, okay. Um, I think we're getting a sense that you are somebody who has a lot of very clear views um, (laughs) (laughs) that you want, that you, and that you're, you know, you don't hold back from, even in face of lots of opposition or the face of the status quo, you don't hold back from saying, you know, this this is how I think it should be. Um, I'm interested to understand where that that confidence comes from. I've always been determined uh, if I see something I want to happen, I will give it my best shot. I will always, I'll be tenacious and try and deliver. That's the way I am, that's in my DNA. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in your mind, uh, an example of where you were you know, absolutely definitive of something and it, and it turned out perhaps a transfer or, or, or something along those lines and it turned out to, to completely, you know, go against what you had imagined would happen? No, I mean, you get problems, uh, you know, it's well, well documented with certain players that you, you bring in or you, you may miss out on, you know, I mean, we, may st- we missed out on Cristiano Ronaldo and that was, right, but... I think he was always going to go to Manchester United, but that was another story. We were a bit of a stalking horse there. But, you know, I, I went out there with the best intentions trying to sign the player. And the following day, we got blown out of the water by Manchester United, and that was a, a monetary situation. Then another thing, I, I wrote about it, about the Ashley Cole transfer, you know, when he went to Chelsea. Mm. Um, that shouldn't have happened. I've got regrets about that now. But he had been, he had had this sort of secret meeting about it, right? That was that was not the right thing to do. So was no, it partly retaliation about that? Uh, yeah, but that spun up because we really didn't offer him the right money for his contract. And he was a homegrown player. I think we should have tried harder at the time. We didn't. Okay. And, and I said publicly, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that to Ashley because, you know, I saw him come through the youth ranks, you know, and he was an Arsenal player. Yeah. 
So, you know, these things happen in football. You, you've got, you, these are challenges you've got to face all the time. Mm. Players coming to their end of their contract. You want to buy a player and can you get them when you've got a lot of competition? How do you do that? How do you beat the opposition? Mm. One of your great successes, of course, was was meeting and then recruiting Arsene Wenger. Um, and he's become a great friend of yours. You worked together for many, many years. Yeah. Um, you said about uh, seeing him play charades was symptomatic <laughs> of the kind of guy that he was. But what did you th- what did you think at that time? What were the characteristics you were looking for in an Arsenal manager? Okay, uh, I think when a board chooses a manager, it's the most important decision they have to make. If you get it right, your life can be easy. If you get it wrong, then you've got issues, you've got problems. Uh, what I would look for personally today, first you've got to have a knowledge as Arsene had a global knowledge of players. He's got an encyclopedia knowledge of players around the world, number one. That's so important. Uh, two, got to have integrity because you're dealing with big money today. Players, particularly in the Premier League, transfers are going anything, for, you know, 20 million up to uh, 150 million or something. So you've got to have integrity because they're responsible for for dealing in big sums of money. They've got to be good motivators. They've got to be able to make sure that the team can be motivated to win the next game. They've got to be a good tactician. How do you make sure that your tactics are right for the next game? They've got to have a good personality. They're the face, by and large, of the club when they're, when they're going out to the press. You know you've interviewed enough players and managers, they've got to be able to purport themselves to be the voice of the club. Mm-hmm. Um, do they get on well with the fans? Do they get on well with the press? So there's a lot of aspects you're looking for in a manager. It's not just you have to be a good player because unfortunately you've got so many good players who've never made it in management. And they sometimes get more chances than they perhaps should. Yeah. Because people well, think, oh, I remember when you were a great player for the club, not mentioning go. any names. Yeah, well, it's no secret. In, in 1971, when we won the double, the manager was Bertie Mee, who was a physiotherapist. Mm. So do you, do you think it's nearly an irrelevance? Are you kind of Jason Mourinho's school of, you know, the translator can come in and do it? Uh, obviously they've got to have a good knowledge of the game, that's important, and they've got to be a good manager. They've got to make sure the the players can be motivated to win the next game. And if you ask any of the Invincibles today, the Arsenal Invincibles, in fact, they came to the book launch two weeks ago. We had eight of the Invincibles. Don't forget that is 18 years ago. Eight of the Invincibles came for that evening out of the respect obviously for Arsene Wenger, perhaps a little bit for me, but also for themselves, because a lot of them hadn't seen each other for years. And it was like old school days. Make a note of the date. May the 15th, 2004. History has been made. One of the greatest achievements since English football began. Arsenal have gone through an entire league campaign without losing. The first time it's happened, for over 100 years, played 38, won 26, drawn 12, lost exactly none. The alchemy, to have been a, around the alchemy of that season oh, must have just been extraordinary. It's a dream, and it particularly when it's a team that you support, you know, that, that to assemble that team. Well, it's never been done since, and I, you know, and it may take several years before it happens again. You never know. Do you think that? But it's, well, it, well, it's taken 18 years. Uh, who knows? What would you, um, what would be your, imagine I'm, well, in fact, specifically, imagine I'm Sol Campbell. Um, what would be your, what would have been your conversation that you were having with me when you were trying to uh, get me to make the leap to join that Arsenal project? Kate, it, it wasn't one conversation. Was <laughs> I'm o- sure. O- over, I hope not. Over several months. And Soul is very studious, very he's deep to get to know. It's not easy. And uh, it took a lot of convincing. 
And of course, Arsene played a big card because he felt and so realised being with Arsene as well, it would help his career, it would take his career to another level. Mm. So, you know, playing the Arsene Wenger card never hurt. Yeah, <laughs> I bet it didn't. But you have to, but in order to get someone to listen to you, there must be, what's that first step? Well, the engagement, the personality, the chemistry. It's rather like you meet somebody, you can, you can tell almost immediately when you've met, if you, if you want to engage with them, if you feel you want a further conversation. Mm-hmm. He uh, had his own mind. And that was, I mean, that was very clear from the onset. We had to win him over. Yeah. And that took some work, some convincing. How did you, when did you know you'd, you'd got him and he was on the hook? Very late on, because, you know, we had severe, very fierce competition at the time. And from abroad, I know there was certainly Manchester United and other clubs in England. And of course, we knew Real Madrid were always there. When it comes to any major player, they were always one of the clubs that uh, wanted him. So that was an issue dealing with them because they would have probably paid more money than we would have done for my way of salary. Those are the scenes at White Hart Lane. Of course, the balloons are in the Tottenham fans' hands. They plan to release those 4,000 balloons with the word Judas on them and also plan uh, a minute of contempt for Sol Campbell. The Arsenal fans will particularly enjoy that minute, one imagines. Situation is that Spurs are only a couple of points behind Arsenal in the table, though. And maybe Tottenham fans should concentrate on that fact and the fact that they will go above Arsenal in the table should they win today. Sol, you handled yourself very well today. Played well as well. What was it like, though, all that abuse? A little bit strange. But uh, at the end of the day, you've got you to take it. Can understand why they were like that all game. I think enough's enough now. But uh, at the end of the day, you've got to handle these these kind of situations. Um, it was a tough game. Who do you think, apart from Arsene Wenger, obviously, is your best signing at Arsenal? When I'm asked that question, I fudge it and say, ah, the Invincibles. Oh, get out of town. You can't have that. <laughs> I am going to have it because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> An entire team. Did you sign Dennis Bergkamp? Was that your signing? Yeah, but that was before Arsenal. Yeah, before. it was. was when Bruce Rio was a manager. At the but time. Bruce Rio was always, was he not always just a bit of a stand-in guy? Even though you finished no, fifth that season? Really. No, he came in after George Graham left. And when that didn't work, I tried to bring in Arsene, uh, as you know from the book again, I tried to bring him in when George left. And the board it wasn't, they weren't ready, ready to go for an overseas manager. That's all it was? Yeah. When you say it didn't work, though, finishing fifth after what Arsenal had been doing in those recent yeah, seasons wasn't so bad. No, but it was also the fact that chemistry wasn't right within the club. It needed to change. OK, yeah, I've heard, I, I've heard quite a lot about that, actually. Um, what do you think would have happened at Arsenal if you'd, if you'd been able to stay on? Because, of course, we say? know that Arsenal talked about leaving when you left. yeah. In 2007? Who can say? I, it's not for me to say. All I know is I'd have given the club, as I did all my... I'd given it my total commitment, morning, noon and night, to try and make it successful. It's tough for you that you weren't able to do that. It was. And what was tough, really, is that Arsene and I had unfinished business. And that hurts. Because we had something very special. To this day, he's still one of my closest friends. I speak to him twice, twice a week now. Even though he's, you know, going around the world, instructing coaches how to deliver and get better, better footballers. Yeah, he seems like such a a fine gentleman. He is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That must have been really. Really wonderful to be a part of each other's oh, lives was, in such a yeah. huge way. And, 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 and when you enjoy it, as we did, we enjoyed each other's company. We enjoyed working together. Didn't really feel like work. I mean, it was just it, it, it was it was so easy because we knew each other that well. Don't forget, I had the advantage. I mean, I knew him eight years before he actually became manager at Arsenal, so that gave me a good foundation. Um, one of the things, let's, let's, I guess, finish talking about Arsenal, really. Um, does it worry you as a fan? Because you came in and you loved the club, but of course, that's not necessarily the case subsequently. What happened with, you, you spoke to Stan Kroenke, but he wasn't, he wasn't a big fan in the way um, that 
the person you sold your uh, Asha, not Mashiri, um, Usmanov was a big Arsenal fan. So he was the guy you wanted to ultimately give your sh- yeah. sell your shares to. Um, does it bother you as a fan that people who just have a lot of money can come in and can say, right, so here's my money, money on the table. I'm going to be able to change how the course of the club is run. People buy any asset, they must be able to control it. I mean, you know, people say, well, um, is it right that, I mean, today I think there's nine or ten of the English clubs are owned by American American owners now. Is that right or wrong? I don't think, it, I don't think it's anything wrong in at all. Um, if they've got the money and provided their motives, and it comes back, are... Where are their motives? Do they really love the sport? Do they love the club? Are they going to develop the club? Mm. And I think all the owners today, I've never met, as I said before, I've never met an owner yet who doesn't love the club, whether he loved the club before he put the money in or afterwards, but they are that much attached to it that they want the club to succeed. Have you met the Glazers? I've met a couple of them from time to time. Okay. Yeah, but they love sport. Uh, I'm not going to go into that because, you know, they're, they've got their issues clearly at Manchester United at the moment. We're talking about fans and we're talking about you saying everyone becomes a fan, but you're against um, fans on club boards. No, I'm not. You're not against fans on club boards. You've been quoted as saying you're against no, no, fans no, no, on no, club no. boards. I, I was a fan on the board. I know, but you were just a fan with a lot of money. <laughs> no, I was a fan. And every board that I've met have got fans on it. I'm not against a fan on the board. What I... What you can't have is the fans dictating, the general body of fans dictating to the board when it comes to transfers and things, right? That you've got to let people manage. You have to do that. They all have a voice. Of course, fans have to have a voice. And it's very important. They're the most important ingredient in the whole of football are the fans. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. But I was the fan on the board. Um, I think that is right. You want somebody with passion on who, who loves the club. Yeah, okay. I suppose many people would see it as just a very different perspective if you've got, because you, as a fan, with all of the investment, you have the power to control things by virtue of, you know, capital, economic power, yeah. whereas what, most what, fans what I, what don't. I, what I wouldn't per- particularly want to see happen is that a fan comes on the board and they rotate every year. There's another fan comes on. You've got to have stability. Yeah, okay. You know, you. Uh, I wouldn't want to see that disruptive. Because it's but, one of the things that's been talked about with the fan-led review, the government idea yeah. of having a fan automatically on the board. Well, I, I haven't met one club yet who hasn't got a fan on the board. Um, in the end, with your um, with your own shares, um, when when you had to sell them, um, yes, they went to Usmanov and Mashiri. They, they were colleagues. Um and subsequently have been very involved in Everton. And many people feel or well, Everton isn't doing as well as they'd like to. So does that cause you to reflect on how things might have gone with them at Arsenal? Now, two things there. Firstly, um, one has to remember that at the time I was, I've never been a good backseat driver. Um, I like to drive the car. That's my nature. You know, I want to, if I'm involved in something, I want to be, I want to, I will give it my best. I give it 100% commitment. So when I was not in the club, at the club at all, when I'd left the club, I, want, I, had to, I wanted to sell my shares. I had too much involved there. So mm. it was a question of who, who they went to. And the second thing was, I only had 15 or 15.5% equity. So whoever I sold to wasn't going to buy the club. Mm. It was just a stepping stone. It was a point the right direction. They still had a long way to go to, to, to purchase the club, whoever it was. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. And in fact, I did offer my shares firstly to Stan Kroenke. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, he offered me a price. And he said, well, if you can do better, do so. And I did. And mm-hmm. that was it. Um, and so Ismanoff did try, did try and take over the club gradually. You, that was something you worked on together. But in the end, not possible. I worked with his vehicle for a year, building his stake up. Um, and... And that was it. And then I dropped out. Okay. Do you look at how things are being run elsewhere? Do, do Everton and the way things have gone with Mashiri there, does that, does that cause you to reflect? Yeah. You know, once again, people are quick to criticise and slow to praise. Um, 
and it's not it's it's not a question of somebody coming with a lot of money it's how you spend the money mm-hmm. and clearly they've made mistakes and they'll get it right eventually i'm sure if they get the right people in okay all right fair enough um if you had if you'd have one prediction for the future of football in the next 20 years what would it be one prediction uh, I come back to what I'd like to see, for sure. I'd like to see all the major leagues in Western Europe go down to 18 clubs. Uh, I'd, uh, I'm, I want to see the women's game continue as it's doing. I want to see more countries playing, getting women getting involved, which they're not at the moment. There's still a resistance. I think that has to change globally. Not, not every country has a women's team. That needs to change. Um, but I think it's going in the right direction. I think one has to be very careful when you come back to what happened with the Super League. That should be avoided at all costs because the game has to be based on merit. Whatever whatever change has to happen has to be based on merit. That's that's important, Mm. the most important ingredient to me. Okay. Do you have one lesson that you've taken away from your um, your time in football? Is there one thing you feel like that time, maybe specifically with Arsenal or maybe more generally, has taught you? Uh, it's uh, That's a tricky question. Uh, nobody knows all the answers, that's for sure. You're, you're always learning. And um, certainly in today's world where you're dealing with the agents of players who are getting more and more important. Um, you've just got to be very, you've, you've got to get on with everybody. I think one of the things, and I've always tried to do this, as a matter of fact, I've always liked to think of myself trying to get on well, understanding other people. And I think that's, that's the advice I often give when I'm going around schools. You know, be interested in other people, listen to what they've got to say, um, be inclusive. Mm. and it's a team game. You need other people around you always. Mm. And would you like to just finish by telling us what's what's taking up your time at the moment? I spend most of my days going around schools and prisons, giving what I like to think are inspirational and motivational talks. Um, and you know, I've got this major charity project called The Twinning Project, which twins a football club with its local prison, which I'm, which is very rewarding. And it's doing very well. We've got 90, from a standing start, we've now got 73 professional football clubs twinned with their local prison. Mm. So that's doing well with a view of reducing reoffending and saving lives. So that is, and then I, fortunately, the FA and the Premier League give me a nice title of being an ambassador for them, which gives me an excuse to go to Qatar for the whole month and watch the World Cup, which I'll be doing next month. David Dean, thank you so much for joining us on the job. Great pleasure. Back now from chatting with David and it's quite a lot to reflect on in that interview, it feels like. He's such an interesting guy and the fascinating thing for me was the combination of him being this like obsessive football fan. I mean, you should have seen the inside of his house. Honestly, it was like an Arsenal shrine. And then that combined with his hard-nosed businessman style perspective on the Premier League and various other things in football so yeah that was kind of a fascinating one and felt like we could have gone on for hours and hours more uh, which I guess is the mark of all good drop-in episodes um he has got a book out David's called Calling the Shots How to Win at Football and Life so that's one of the reasons why he's been collating all his memories together for the last few months and all of the profits from the book are going to go to the Twinning Project charity that we talked a bit about. So yeah, get back wherever you get your best books. And as for the drop-in, we loved having you along this week and we've been loving hearing from you. So do get in touch with any suggestions for new, for new guests or any questions or whatever. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at KVL Mason, or you can tweet us at Football Ramble, and we'll speak to you very soon. Take care. This was a Stack Production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.
by the way, just can we have a look at the... Oh, the, the uh, spray excuse, has done excuse brilliantly. Me, Although get, it is still, do, it does no, look a little it's bit really, as though you've... nearly there. <laughs> I think I'll get a reprieve here. Yeah, you've done you've done well. Although to be, just to be clear, to people who can't see it back home, it, uh, it does look as though a poached egg is sitting um, just it, to your it, foot. That will disappear to, as well. Right. Give it a few, <clears throat> a few minutes. Have you ever thought about working for QDC, the shopping channel? <laughs> 